And good morning to everyone. If you're new, I'm Jamie. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of Amos. The book of Amos. Um, Amos is a smaller book in the Old Testament. So if you have to use the table of contents in your Bible, there's no shame in that. Um, Just find the Psalms right there in the middle. Just keep going to the right. You're going to get past all the big prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then you're going to run into the what they call the minor prophets. They're not minor because of their message. They're minor because they're small. You'll see Hosea, then Joel, and then Amos. Amos chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, then grab the one from under the chair in front of you, and you get to cheat because I'm going to give you the page number. Page 764 of the church Bible. We're going to be reading a couple of verses in Amos 1 and a couple of verses in Amos 7 today. And so... um, Let's go ahead, go ahead and find Amos chapter 1. I will read verse 1 and 2, and then ask for the Lord's help on our time together in His Word, and uh, we'll get to work uh, working through this. should be around 40, 45 minutes or so. This is the Word of the Lord. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Let's pray. Uh, Lord and Father, your people don't need my words, they need your words. Mine are the words of man, yours are are the words of God, the words containing eternal life. Would you be so kind to us this morning and give us grace through your Holy Spirit that what we read would be real in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. Give us understanding this morning. Teach us to love Jesus, to trust Jesus, and to follow Jesus as we live our lives making much of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Almost 2,000 years ago, somewhere in the Middle East, someone wrote a letter to their friends. Here's what they said. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. That person's warning and concern for their friends is as valid then as it is for us today. 
I'm afraid, my dear fellow Christians, that we are not nearly afraid enough of our sin. The author of the book of Hebrews goes to great lengths to warn their readers of what they call the deceitfulness of sin. And they certainly were not the first biblical author to do this. In the first book of the Bible, God Himself warns Cain that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. It was God who said that man's inclination is evil from his youth. And even 700 years before the book of Hebrews was written, the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Our hearts, infected by our rebellion against our God, will deceive us. The reality is that we do not see ourselves as we truly are, but rather as we think we are. Our world preaches that you are who you feel yourself to be. And our God, in His limitless kindness, tells us that's wrong. You are who I say you are. And God, in His kindness, reveals to us the true condition of our heart. The risen Lord Jesus once told a church that you think that you're rich and prosperous and that you need nothing, but in reality, you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And the Lord's words seem to modern ears to be harsh. And they would be harsh unless they were true. Because if they're true, then like a doctor's diagnosis, they're the most kind words that church could have heard. So the Lord gives us warnings about the dangers of our sin and its, its effect on our lives if it goes unchecked and unrepented. And oftentimes... We ignore our Lord's warnings. And our spirits, like Dorothy in the poppy fields of Oz, are lulled to sleep, and we must be roused from our slumber. And God, in His steadfast love and glorious grace and great mercy, roars to wake us. The opening lines of the book of Amos will set the tone for the whole book of Amos. The Lord roars. And while many in our day would seem to prefer a God who is tame and manageable, the God of the Bible is not tame or manageable. He cannot be domesticated, He cannot be controlled. He is endlessly magnificent, unimaginably powerful. And He is infinitely good. And He roars. Not like a man who's lost his temper, 
but like a father whose toddler is running into traffic. Stop! The Lord roars. When the Lord roars in Amos, He does so for His glory and for His people's good. The Lord's rebuke is often heavy, but it is never unkind. The Lord will use the least severe means to bring about the greatest repentance and spiritual renewal in the hearts of His elect. When the Lord roars against sin, we must turn to Him for forgiveness and peace. That's really the summary of my message this morning. When the Lord roars against sin, turn to Him for forgiveness and for peace. This is the first of what is likely to be around seven sermons in the book of Amos. This morning will be a bit of a setup. We will look at the setting of the book of Amos. We will look at the message briefly of the book of Amos. And then lastly, we will look at the response, the people's response to the message of Amos. There's much here that will be instructive and helpful to us. And so I I think before we get very deep into it, I would like for us to get our bearings as to where we are in biblical history. And so if we take a look at verse 1 again, we will see some of the setting of the book of Amos. We read the, the words of Amos, who we're told was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. In the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So we read the words of Amos to Israel. Verse 1 actually tells us a good bit about where we're, what's going on in this book. Amos is a sh- among the shepherds of Tekoa. God gave him a word during the, during the days of Uzziah, king in Judah, and Jeroboam, which is actually Jeroboam II, king in Israel, two years before the earthquake. So that gives us a setting. The days of Uzziah and the days of Jeroboam II. This means that Amos ministered sometime around the mid-760s B.C. So about 767 years before the Lord Jesus took on human flesh. And let me remind you where we are then in biblical history. Last year, you guys remember, we spent a good, good bit of time in, uh, in the life of King David. King David reigned in, in Israel around 1000 B.C. to around 970 B.C., And much of David's reign in Jerusalem was over the entire 12 tribes of Israel, a united kingdom of Israel. When King David died, his son Solomon became king. God blessed Solomon with great wisdom, tremendous wealth. And then when King Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. And the people came to Rehoboam, their new king, and they asked him for a reduction in taxes. Under Solomon, there was high taxes. And so they asked their new king for a reduction in taxes, and Rehoboam flexed. 
his newfound power and increased taxes. And so the people did what people do. They threw his tea in the harbor and they seceded from the union and they made someone else their king. And so the kingdom was divided. Ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. The ten tribes in the northern kingdom are known simply as Israel. And the two tribes in the south, in the southern kingdom, are known as Judah. The national capital was still in Jerusalem. And this new king in the north, he feared that if his people were to travel to the south in order to worship their God, well, there was a danger that they might swear loyalty to the king in the south. And so he decided to start his own denomination. And he gave Israel a couple of cities where they were to worship in the northern kingdom. He was so nice to these people that he even built them two golden calves, saying to them, well, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Real nice guy. Real bad with history. He took one of the golden calves and he put it in the north in a city called Dan. He took the other golden calf and he put it in the city in the south called Bethel. Eventually, Israel made herself a brand new capital. I mean, Jerusalem was the capital, but they wanted a new one, so they made a new capital, called it Samaria. And then what follows in in the northern kingdom is, is a succession of 13 kings over the course of like 150 some years, all kings evil men leading God's people into false worship and pagan practices. And the Lord is merciful and sends to them prophet after prophet, at least five prophets. Some you've heard of before, like Elijah and Elisha. And they would not repent. Elijah would call them to repent. Elisha would call them to repent. They would refuse to turn to Yahweh and repent. And in the middle of all this, in 760 B.C., the king of Israel is a man named Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, who we are introduced to here in verse 1. And like all the other kings in Israel, he himself is a wicked man, leading God's people to worship idols. Jeroboam II even had a prophet in his payroll, in his pocket, a man you may have heard of by the name of Jonah. Up to that point, Israel had been kind of poor. They had lived many years under the boot of their neighbors to the north, a people called the Syrians. But in recent years, the Syrians had, they had their own problems with their northern neighbors called the Assyrians. And they had been fighting, and so Syria had been weakened. And Jeroboam II took advantage of this, and he began expanding the borders of the northern kingdom to great success, and he brought enormous economic prosperity to the country of Israel. The rich got real rich, and the poor stayed poor. And this newfound wealth among the rich led to a a sort of smugness in the kingdom. 
There was a complacency. There was an apathy among the upper classes in Israel. And it is around this time that the Lord sends Amos to Israel. And Amos, we're told in verse 1, is among the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, why would the author of this book tell us where he's from? Well, if you do uh, the research, you'll find that Tekoa was a small village located about 10 miles outside of Jerusalem, which means that Amos was from Judah. He's a southerner. And what's worse, he's among the shepherds. In chapter 7, we'll find out that he is a dresser of sycamore figs. Here's what that means. Amos is a farmer. He is not a formally trained prophet preacher. He didn't go to prophet's seminary. He is among a, the blue-collar people in Judah. He wears ball caps and flannels and weathered work boots. In my mind, he has a mullet, <laughs> drives a pickup truck, takes his family to the Dark County Fair every year. Amos is not an educated man. But let's not go thinking that he is dumb. The word used for shepherd in verse 1 is actually an unusual word. It likely means that he was a manager of shepherds. So this is, this is a guy who knows his way around the farming business. His preaching shows an extensive knowledge of the Bible that was available to him at the time. His style is direct and poetic. He employs wordplay and irony, and my favorite, name-calling. In chapter 4, he calls some uh, bossy women fat cows, which I appreciate. Amos will then lead you down a path, and you think you know where he's going, and then he'll shift and turn things around on you. And so when the Lord sent word to self-indulgent, upper-class, smug Israelites. He sent that word through Amos, a farmer in Wranglers from the south. This is very often God's way. How did the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 1? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in His presence. In order to bring about repentance in Israel, the human heart in Israel must be confronted with its own pride. And what better way to break prideful man than to have him crash against the immovable rock of a humble man? The Lord roars against pride in Israel through Amos, the man least likely to be listened to by Israel. When the Lord confronts us 
in our pride. Have you found Him to do something very similar? To send someone into your life that you would not have chosen to be the mouthpiece of God at that moment? Perhaps even someone you don't particularly like. That guy at HR. That outspoken liberal in accounting. Some of you got me. (laughs) Sorry about that. I mean, one guy got a donkey, so I guess you can count your blessings. (laughs) To the rich... And to the dull in Israel, God sent a farmer named Amos. So that's the setting of the book of Amos. And I'll remind us of that as we work through this book together. But now I would like to move on and look briefly at the overall message of the book of Amos. And for that, we turn to verse 2, where we see Amos saying, the Lord saying through Amos, the Lord roars from Zion. And utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. The Lord roars from Zion. Zion is a a name place for the city of Jerusalem. And it's one thing to hear, it's one thing for Israel to hear the Lord roars. It's a whole other thing for them to hear the Lord roars from Jerusalem. It'd be like the Lord sending a northern preacher to antebellum south during the Civil War to say the Lord roars from Washington. The Lord speaks from a place that is unrecognized as authoritative to the kingdom of Israel. And this is one of the things that we find in the book of Amos. That whether or not one recognizes the Lord's authority, the Lord retains that authority all the same. The Bible teaches that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. That there is no creature hidden from His sight, which means there's no creature who will avoid that confession. So you will either bow the knee in this life, or you will bow the knee in the next. And so I think that would be a good place for us to stop the exposition of this text and just address any non-Christians in the room. If you're not a Christian and you're here, I'm glad you're here. But you need to know that whether or not you recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord over your life, He is Lord over your life. And you will confess Him as Lord over your life, in this life or in the next. If you confess Him with as Lord of your life in this life, believing in your heart that He is God, He is who He said He is, turning to Him in faith, trusting in Him, He will forgive you of your rebellion against Him, and He will grant to you the righteousness of God and eternal life. But dear friend, if you wait and bow the knee in the next life, it will be too late. You will be under the judgment of God forever in a conscious, eternal torment in a place called hell. We would spare you of that. Turn from your sin today. Trust in Him. And talk to one one of us afterwards. After the service is over, we usually just kind of mill about here for a few minutes, hang out with us, take someone by the hand, and ask them to tell you more about Jesus Christ and eternal life. So Amos preaches. 
And Amos preaches against injustice. Amos saw the injustice that was going on in Israel in his day, and he preached against it. And this is something you find in the Scriptures, not just in Amos, but one of the quickest ways to get yourself on the bad side of God is to oppress the poor and marginalized. And as we will see in the weeks to come, Amos addresses this sin in Israel. Amos's approach to social injustice is, is unique. He doesn't lobby for economic upheaval, but he presses for religious repentance. You see, God knows something that the 21st century Westerner has yet to learn about injustice. That the evils of social and racial injustice don't originate in politics or in societies or in economic theories. They are expressed there, but they originate in the human heart. Amos will teach us that all social and racial injustice is a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Real justice starts by acknowledging there is one God who is worthy of my worship and my devotion and my life. And justice can only begin when sinners repent of worshiping something other than the one true God. You see, the oppression of the poor in Israel was really a worship problem. And so God sent Amos to address it. And it's no different in our day. Consider white supremacy, for example. White supremacy is a rotten fruit on the human tree. And the modern approach is to swat the flies away from the rot rotten fruit, but to never address the rotten fruit, the thing that's drawing the flies. Amos will help us to see that white supremacy, like all injustice, is a violation of the first commandment. It's worship of creation rather than creator. Author Thaddeus William Williams helpfully explains, Racism, therefore, is not merely horizontally unjust, depriving others what they are due. It is also vertically unjust, failing to give the Creator His due by making race an ultimate object of devotion. End quote. If we leave worship of the true God out of the discussion of injustice, we'll never address the evils that cause it. We'll just swat the flies around the rotten fruit and never get rid of the fruit. And Amos helps us to address the root problems of all injustice, which is theistic injustice, not giving God His due. So more on that as we move along through this book. Here's another thing we will see in the preaching of the prophet Amos. That unrepentant sin dims our vision and dulls our hearts. One sin blinds us to another sin, which then blinds us to another sin, and down we go. 
That unchecked, unrepentant sin never stays where it is, but it spreads. And it cools the heart of its affections for Christ. And if left on its own, unrepented of, sin will sear the conscience. In Romans chapter 1, we read that when men and women continue in unrepentant sin, well, the Lord eventually just hands them over to their sin. He gives them what they want. In verse 28, we read, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, first commandment, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The apostle goes on to explain it gets so bad that not only do they excuse their own sin, but then they celebrate that sin in others. In fact, it is all too common. So we see through the preaching of Amos, the Lord roars. The Lord roars His people to wake up to the reality and to the danger of their sin. His message, as I said, is direct. But you see, it needs to be. Amos is like a smoke alarm. You know, they don't manufacture smoke alarms that play Bach at level two. A smoke alarm screams with a shrill, pulsing sound to wake you up. The house is on fire. You're going to die. That's Amos. Amos is a smoke alarm. But the judgment of God is coming. Turn to him in repentance and find forgiveness and peace. So we've seen the setting of Amos. We've seen a little bit of the message of Amos. And last we turn to the response of the people to Amos. How did Israel respond to this cowboy boot preacher from the south? Well, they should have responded like you see in verse 2. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. Mount Carmel withers. They should have responded like the land responded. They should have mourned their sin. The mountain of their pride should have withered before his resounding voice. But instead, we find more unrepentant responses. Turn, if you will, to chapter 7, which is just a couple of pages to the right. Amos chapter 7, verse 10. This is one response to the preaching of the prophet Amos. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of, Is of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary. 
is a temple of His kingdom. And then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line, and you yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. We'll save the exposition of that passage for when we make it to chapter 7, but I just wanted to show you how Israel responded to the preaching of the prophet Amos. And you can pretty much gather from this guy, Amaziah, they did not respond with repentance. Amaziah was some kind of priest in Bethel, and he warned the king that Amos was speaking against him. And instead of heeding the message of the prophet Amos, he attacked the person of Amos. Amaziah tells the prophet Go home, Amos. Go back to Judah. Stop preaching here. Go preach to your own people. Never again speak to us about this. Some of you have had similar responses to your preaching, to your sharing of the gospel from your family and friends. I wish you could just stop with this Jesus stuff, man. It's like every time we hang out, it's all we talk about. It used to be so fun. And if that's you, I just want to say to you, well done. The Bible says that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And so, that persecution ought to make you thankful. I know it's hard. It's heartbreaking. But the Lord has counted you worthy to suffer for His name. You do well. And with all the gentleness that the Spirit would enable in you, keep sharing. Be persistent. Don't let up in prayer. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep looking for angles. Keep asking the Spirit to open doors. And keep sharing. Amos' reply to Amaziah reflects his white-hot devotion to his God. He tells him, I'm just a shepherd. I didn't ask for this. God chose me. You think I just wanted to wake up one day and go to you and tell you stuff you didn't want to hear? To be hated by you? There's no money in that. You say, go. Well, God sent me to go. You're telling me to go. God told me to go. Who do you think I should listen to? And God sent me to you. And then Amos foretells the devastation that's coming upon Amaziah. And it's not pleasant. 
Back in the first verse of this book, the author tells us that Amos's prophecy came two years before the earthquake. Amos warned them. When you read the whole book of Amos, you'll see about ten times where he warns them that the Lord would shake the foundations of their cities if they didn't repent. And then Amos' ministry came to an end. And he went home. And Israel didn't repent. And God waited two years. And then there was an earthquake. And people died. And then six evil kings after Jeroboam II, in 722 B.C., those Assyrians to the north, remember the ones that were giving trouble to the Syrians? Well, they gobbled them all up. And then they set their sight on Israel. And they besieged the city of Samaria. And they destroyed it. And the Assyrians moved foreigners into the land. And the survivors of the invasion married into those families and began worshiping their foreign gods. adopting more idol practices, worshiping more false gods. And the descendants of those people became known simply as the Samaritans. During the time of Christ, the Samaritans were a despised people by the Jews. They were half-breeds, traitors, considered unclean due to their mixed ancestry and false worship. But the point is, the Lord kept His word. He was patient. But He is also just. God is holy. And unrepentant sin is not safe. Not in Israel, in 760 B.C. And not in Piqua, in 2021. The only safe place is Jesus Christ. The wrath of God against all sin was poured out on Him. He bore the penalty of sin in His sinless body. And God raised Him from the dead three days later. And He ascended into heaven where He sits at the right hand of the Father. And all who turn to Him by faith are united to Him and spared the judgment of their sin. Let's not be like foolish Israel and turn a deaf ear to the preaching of God's prophets. Let's not be like the readers of the book of Hebrews and be deceived by our sin. Cornerstone, let's take our sin as seriously as God does. And if you want to know how serious sin is, look to the cross. God gave His own Son the second member of the Trinity, to atone for sin. That's how seriously He takes it. Turn to Him, confess your sin, and receive forgiveness and peace. That person you offended, even if you don't think that you need to, go to them and ask them for your forgiveness. Ask them to forgive you. 
You keep coming to church and acting like everything's fine, even though Jesus told you, leave your gift at the altar, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come back. Friend, go be reconciled. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, reconciliation is yours. It's a ministry that we all share. Be reconciled to your brother and sister. That person who offended you, who you can't seem to forgive, run to Christ on the cross. See where you've been forgiven and offer that same forgiveness to your friend. If you're a Christian, forgiveness isn't an option. If you don't forgive those who've sinned against you, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. That's not my words. Those are Jesus' words. Go make it right. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. The lie that you've been telling for so long that you're starting to even believe it's true yourself. Dear one, come clean. There's more mercy at the cross than there is sin in you. Just let it out. You will find, I promise, if you sit down with a brother or sister in the Lord and confess the worst thing you've ever done, you will find them more than willing to treat you just the same. To forgive you because they know what it's like to be forgiven. There's more mercy at the cross than there is sin in you. Don't deal lightly with your sin. Run. Run with all your might to the cross where you will find mercy, grace, and a gentle and willing Savior who will wrap His arms around you and forgive you of all that you've done. Let's pray. Father, we confess we need Amos in our life. We don't see ourselves as we truly are. We have entertained sin. We've been deceived by our sin. And Lord, you've been so patient. We deserve your strict judgment. We deserve heavy punishment for playing with sin like it was no big deal. Please forgive us. Open our eyes both to the need of Jesus and to the sufficiency of Jesus. Send your Holy Spirit to continue to convict us and to give us grace to run to the cross no matter what we've done. No matter how many times we've committed the same sin, give us grace to keep coming back and saying, Father, forgive me. Enable us to lay our lives at your feet. And Lord, send us. It is your good pleasure to send the least likely, the foolish to confound the wise. And so here we are, fools, but your fools. Send us. Send us to Piqua. Send us to Miami County. Send us to the job site. Send us to the office. 
Send us to Turkey, to Singapore, to the unreached people of the world. And would you equip us, the saints of God, to carry the message of this glorious gospel to the lost and to the dying. That Jesus would get all that he deserves for his life and for his death. Amen. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have an assurance of pardon from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead.